0: Come with me as we dive into some of the most intimate diaries a person could share. My mission is to inspire you to push through during the toughest of times, too. Thank you for being here. I can't wait for you to hear these stories. I'm creating a collection of stories showcasing resilient people who overcome unimaginable hardships while finding beauty in the ups and downs of life. Every moment is significant. This is Push Diaries Podcast. I'm your host, Tess. Was going through my rehabilitation feeling really low and isolated and just kind of down in the dumps. I was flipping through the channels and I stumbled across NBC Nightly News and Kate Snow was interviewing a family who had a transgender son. I was curious and also very interested to learn more about this family because I knew it was something that must feel so isolating for the family but also for Jacob. I thought this story was inspiring, and I wanted to share it with all of you. So, I decided to contact Mimi LeMay, who is the mother of Jacob. One of Mimi's quotes is, Mama isn't just a word, it's a promise. Here's Mimi.
1: Yeah, so I was born in Jerusalem, Israel. And my parents, when I was very young, separated. My father was a secular humanist, I think he would call himself Israeli. And my mother... Was becoming more Orthodox, uh, which is, means more kind of religiously strict as a Jewish person. And um, we left with my brother, myself, my mother to go to the US when I was six years old. And we moved to Brookline, Massachusetts, where uh, we lived in a very ultra Orthodox community. And from there, when we were 10, we moved to Muncie, New York. Uh, Again, another whole level of uh, religious observance in terms of very strict rules about food, what we ate, about Sabbath and the holidays. Um, And as a girl, also very gendered roles uh, for us as women in our community, number of expectations, not only for myself as a young girl growing up in terms of modesty and comportment and expectations of what I would do with my life, but also in terms of, When I grew up, you know, how would I find a mate and what would my future look like? And as a young person growing up, I chafed against those rules. I found them to be unfair. Um, There was definitely uh, quite a bit of what I would call misogyny uh, kind of baked into the system, particularly when it came to intellectual pursuits As a young woman in high school, I became very enamored of studying the Torah, which is, you know, the Jewish, the Old Testament, the Jewish uh, foundational text. And I loved all the explorations we did with, you know, looking at old commentaries from hundreds of years ago. But that sort of pursuit was saved for, for men in our community, especially As I got older and went to a religious seminary in England, it became very clear that no one wanted me to continue my studies Uh, after a certain age. I was expected to get married, have children, and be focused on supporting my husband's work and my husband's learning. And that bothered me a lot. So I did leave the community. It was a very difficult choice because I left, you know, my home behind, my mother. Uh, came back to the US. At this point, we were living in England, went to college, and shed a lot of my orthodoxy. And that again was a struggle because I was kind of re- rebirthing myself in a way uh, in a totally secular world. How old were you this time then? I was 22 years old when I left home as an Orthodox Jewish woman. You stay at home until you get married. So I was completely unprepared for life on my own. However, made it work and met my husband when I was 25. He's not Jewish. Ended up getting married at 29, uh, having what I thought of were three absolutely perfectly healthy baby girls. My middle child, when I was uh, when she was two and a half, uh, began to tell us that they were a boy. And at that point in our lives, I knew nothing about the word transgender. I would never have associated it with a child. I thought it was something that people who were older kind of chose to be. I was confused. I thought it had something to do with cross-dressing. I didn't know what gender identity was or that it's different than, for example, sexual orientation. And for uh, over a year and a half, I struggled as My child, who I knew as a daughter, seemed to be kind of devolving into anxiety, sadness, a lot of anger over this subject, saying again and again, I am a boy. I'm not a girl. I'm not pretending. And eventually, after about a year of struggling and trying to find any solution that I could, whether it was, you know, saying, we don't care what you wear or, you know, yeah, if you want toys that are typically associated with males. Go for it. Um, Nothing that we did seemed to make a dent in my child's internal struggle and distress. Finally, we said, we need to look at this. We need to examine this seriously. We need to have help. So we went to um, the gender education management clinic at Boston Children's Hospital, which is One of the premier gender identity, you know, management clinics in the country for children. And we uh, spoke to the therapist that they recommended for us. And I learned that indeed, you know, at a very young age, children do know, develop a a very firm sense of who they are in regard to gender identity. That's that deeply held sense of who you are. And we gave our son a son, which, you know, we kind of knew this was coming, but we gave our child the choice of uh, transitioning socially, which meant new name, new pronouns. Uh, You get to be who you know you are inside at the age of four, a little over four years old. And our son said to us, I want to be a boy, always a boy named Jacob. And he's been that every single day since.
0: So he picked his own name even. He did. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, I think it's, really interesting, too, how he knew, even when he was just two and a half, like, how much he knew truly who he was. I think that's beautiful. And, you know, I think it's amazing, too, Mimi, about how, you know, just where you came from, and the boxes you felt you were put in, and how that prepared you to better mother Jacob, I think is a really beautiful twist to your story. Yeah, how did your how did your husband and you struggle with the decision to go to Boston to see that doctor? Did you guys equally get there at the same time um, of accepting that you were going to do this, or did you have to wrestle together? You know, how was his family accepting of this decision and also supportive of you guys as parents and as a couple to make this decision also?
1: That's a great question. So um, I would say we were about the same pace in, in figuring out what was going on with our son it, um, he went immediately to looking on the internet for, you know, anything he could find in terms of, has this happened before? Is there such a thing as transgender kids? He found a TEDx talk about, uh, some transgender twins, I believe, or one of the twins was trans and some research that had been done around them and they were 12 years old. So that still felt really far ahead of us at the time, because our our child was only three and a half, four. But he was definitely of the same mindset that when we knew the risks to trans kids, if they're not affirmed, uh, the the levels of depression and anxiety, and unfortunately, a really, really high number of transgender youth uh, attempt suicide because of non-acceptance or bullying. And that figure is close to 50%, which is really shocking. When that was what was at stake, I think we both came together and realized that we could not hold this off much longer because every additional year that we kind of tried to pull him back into the role that he felt he was just playing, which was that of a girl for us, uh, was another year of damage psychologically, another year of shame and internalization of, of shame yep exactly. I uh, so about Joe's family and about my family yes. yes like do you have a relationship
0: with your mom now or as the kids were born? did you guys reconnect? Yeah mm-hmm. talk about your family and how they were accepting of you or not?
1: So um, when I left my mother's home to and left orthodoxy, it was very difficult for her. Uh, she is a devout uh, Jew and she still is to the same extent. It was hard for her, but I, when I was 22 years old, I gave her sort of an ultimatum. I can't live in this community anymore. I'm going to leave. I'm doing this to save myself. I was suffering from depression at the time and just starting to feel hopeless about my future in that community. And I said, you know, I'm either doing this with or without you, but I'm going. So she made the choice and and I respect that and um, I'm grateful for it to stick with me. And for that meant she continued to speak with me on the phone. She wasn't delighted at every choice I made, for example, you know, dating someone who wasn't Jewish and then marrying him, but she does love my husband and she loves my kids. And like she always says, she's someone who's kind of stuck between two worlds.
0: Okay. Okay. I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about Beauty Counter. They make amazing lotions and balms that are safe for the whole family, even new babies. I love this stuff because the products are naturally derived and safe for the little ones. The sunflower oil nourishes deep in the skin while forming a protective barrier. The shea butter and jojoba seed oil easily absorbs into the skin, providing immediate lasting hydration. My two favorite products are the Baby Daily Protective Balm or the Adaptive Moisture Lotion. It feels so great on my dry face during the winter. I love that these products use biomimic technology that harnesses the unique life-giving properties of plants to match the skin, giving it precisely what it needs and nothing more. If you are interested in learning more about Beauty Counter, contact my consultant, Linda. You can go to beautycounter.com forward slash Linda Gallagher. G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R.
1: Let's get back to the show. It was definitely a harder, a harder thing for her to understand than for my mother-in-law, who, you know, is Catholic, but she's uh, more secular, I would say, um, and, you know, has access to more information that would help her understand what it meant to have a transgender grandchild. My mother-in-law, Kathy, was supportive pretty much from the beginning, um, but my mom had a hard time with it, and when we did end up transitioning Jacob, it was during one of her, you know, two- or three-week-long visits from England at the time, and she refused to use the name Jacob until my son would ask her himself, but he was so shy about it at the point. It was so new to him. He'd never asked anyone before And he also knew that she wasn't on board yet, so he wouldn't ask her. And she was refusing to use either name for him. And so we had a very, a very tense couple of days in our house until my husband took my mom for a walk and said, listen, Bubby, that's what we called her. You need to kind of get on board here because this is important for our kid."
0: And how hard for all of you to not be able to move forward. I mean, that is a decision that takes everybody's, you know, willingness to bring it on board and to call him the proper pronouns and, you know, by the name in which he asked. So I'm glad the walk went well. That must have been you know, hard for everybody.
1: <laughs> it was. Um, and and she, she was reluctant. I mean, her answer was kind of begrudging at the time. But I have to say, um, she really has come a long way. And I know it must be difficult for her because her community, the community that she was in and the community that she's actually now moved uh, from England to the U.S., and the community that she's now in is definitely not making the same strides in terms of acceptance of trans people that other uh, sectors of the Jewish community are, the less religious, like the um, reform and conservative movements within Judaism that are far more accepting. Uh, so I think she, you know, like she put it so, so well. She really is stuck between two worlds.
0: I, you know, it's it's interesting because even me, as a straight white female, you know, and before I was in a wheelchair and went through cancer, I, I still feel this way to an extent, but for sure. Before all of this um, has hit me in my life, I have felt like I've been stuck between two worlds as far as my faith is concerned. You know, I was raised Lutheran. You know, I chose to be baptized when I was 15. My parents let me kind of decide that for myself. But, you know, I have had friends growing up that identified as gay. I knew that my friends that grew up at the same church I did didn't accept my friend, you know, as a gay man. And and I know you know this, but today in our world, there's still lots of discrimination. I mean, every day I remember when Mm -hmm. Ellen finally started her TV show. I, I don't know if it was like right around the same time she did or shortly after, but I remember her coming on air one day saying that a young, I think he was a gay, like 15 year old boy. Had, had made a kind gesture to another male around Valentine's Day and was ended up murdered. You maybe remember yeah. this story. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it's just, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm a straight white female, but I even feel like I'm judged for the way that I accept people. And mm. we do, we live in a world that sometimes our religion actually divides us or places fear on how we want to live. Again, I I think your story is so beautiful, Mimi, about how you and your mom have felt maybe trapped with your religious beliefs. How has your um, religious beliefs changed then as a mother who's gone through all of this? How would you say your faith is now?
1: So it's interesting, but when I left, when I left Orthodoxy, you know, in my 20s, I kind of had that, I was done with it. I I was, I I was burned. I, I felt hurt and betrayed by the faith and I felt that I still continued to believe in God because it just been part of my fabric of my being, and it's just a sense that I always had of a higher power. But I just assumed that everything that the rabbis of my youth had told me about God was true, and that meant that I was I was outside of the faith. I had taken myself outside of God's grace by leaving. Um, and that continued for many years, and when I had kids, I, I was I felt very uncomfortable with the idea of raising them in the faith. Like, it had been such a bad experience for me But when Jacob was going through the throes of, you know, his gender identity crisis, and I was trying to figure out what to do, I reached out to that sense, that higher being that I had a sense was there. And I wrote about it in the book. And it's, I think for me, it's one of the most powerful moments in the book. It's kind of like a climax And I I received a response. And uh, whether you believe in a higher power or not, I think that that kind of direct message from the universe is so powerful. And it made me realize that rather than what I had assumed that I was not loved anymore or not not within the circle of grace, rather the opposite, that this child that was given to me and the struggle that was given to me was a gift, a unique gift. That I could not have fulfilled. I could not have been the mother I was meant to be for Jacob had I remained in that community. I had to right. leave and my leaving was a good thing. And in a sense yeah. that brought my faith back to me. And I, I feel strongly that that there is a higher being but that I don't believe that any higher being would want us to be using anything that he, she, they said or intended to hurt other people. Knowing so many transgender people, knowing so many people who are gay, that coming to our fruition as human beings, whether it's realizing and actualizing a gender identity, an authentic gender identity, or discovering who we love, who makes us a good person to be with... That is the highest that we can achieve as human beings. How could that possibly be something that was not intended by God?
0: Oh, I I totally agree with you. And I am so happy that you're saying it out loud because I think you're going to inspire a lot of people listening to challenge themselves to seek that deeper meaning of life and Mm -hmm. to not take something you know, that is flashed before your eyes is something that has to be practiced by you personally. I mean, I think it's, like I said, I think it's sad that faith has been kind of, oh gosh, what's the word, translated to be hateful or fearful, you know, to instill that in us when I feel the same way. I've always felt a connection to God and just like a deep, deep knowing that I am a daughter of God, you know, but I, I would never want to use that as something that makes me be able to put restrictions on someone else and how they want to live their life. You know, if they're not hurting me, I don't feel like I have any right or say, you know, to say you shouldn't live that way. You know, yeah, I, I want to live my truest self. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be loving to my neighbors, even if it's different than what I was taught or what I, you know, grew up believing. I want to be my own person now. And these are the conversations we have to have, especially in our political climate. It's, it's, it's so important.
1: It Um, is really important. And and as we speak, there are some bills across 10 different States now that try are trying to restrict parents like me from giving our children life-saving interventions you know, for gender yeah. nonconforming kids, like preventing them from accessing puberty blockers when they reach the age of puberty, which is really important for a transgender kid to not have the puberty associated with the sex that they were assigned at birth and stuff like not allowing them to access when they're older hormones, things like that. And a lot of these bills have been supported by these family values, quote-unquote, like religious organizations. And it's really frightening to see, you know, that this kind of culture war play out with transgender kids being caught in the middle because the, the true medical experts across the board, whether it's the American Medical Association or American Academy of Pediatrics or American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, they all have agreed. They have all said the standard of care for these kids is that we, we follow their lead, we, we work with a medical team, and when puberty arrives, if they need it, they need to access puberty blockers because we know what happens when they don't, and that is a really dark path.
0: Right, right. I mean, just, just feeling like, you know, especially with your family as a perfect example, you know, fostering that love and that acceptance that Jacob has chosen, and then to imagine him as a young male – But feeling like he looks like a female, I mean, yeah, that is a dark place. That doesn't match his wishes for himself at all. And then to have our policymakers say anything otherwise, is—is it is. It's scary. Can you talk a little bit, um, Mimi, about those bills? And um, I know this is kind of a loaded question, but what can I do and what can parents that are listening do from their homes to... Foster and instill acceptance and tolerance not only in our children, but in our communities. And how do we get out there and make it known that's what we want with these scary bills in place?
1: Um, That's a really great great question, and I have a a list here of the states that are now have these bills on the docket. So if you live in one of these states, look up and fight against. I'm not sure what the, the bills are called, but I believe that they are. The bills are claiming that giving uh, transgender children necessary medical care for gender dysphoria is child abuse. So there, you might find those words in the bills. But Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, New Hampshire, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, and Utah are all states that okay. have legislative bills that will make it illegal to provide transgender youth under 18 with affirmative medical care.
0: That is going to be really helpful for listeners to hear that Um, and also maybe surprising for some if they have not educated themselves on this angle of discrimination. It is out there. It is prominent. And the more that we talk about it, the more things that can be done to move this forward in the right directions, which is tolerance and acceptance.
1: So if you go to hrc.org, Human Rights Campaign, they will uh, definitely have a list of the states, and they are tracking anti-trans legislation across the country. Uh, it would be a great way for listeners to get involved, and I would be so grateful to have people do that.
0: Yes, and they can sign up for newsletters through HRC, so, and they'll keep you in the loop as far as how those bills are moving and what things still need to be done. Exactly. Okay, great. How often do you guys go back to Boston? Where are you living now, Mimi?
1: So we're living in in the North shore of Massachusetts. So we're not too far from Brookline, which is where my mom is living. And, um, so yeah, we see her every week. She's, she visits about one or two days out of every week. You know, she's very helpful and, uh, we still have a relationship and, I think it was a little Uh, hard when the book came out because, you know, I talked a lot about our relationship in the book. I think it was essential to the story. It was essential to the case I was making for, you know, sometimes we reflexively want to keep our children safe, quote unquote, from breaking society's norms. But that, in fact, can be the most harmful thing for them. And so for me, that part of the story was really important. And so I think my mother does understand that. And we've kind of gotten past, you know, that feeling of, oh, you're writing about me. I feel so exposed. I think the best of her came out in the book, too. I'm so happy to hear
0: that, you know, your family's at a place That will allow new growth and celebration of each of you individually just accepting you for who you are. And, you know, also, I'm proud of your mom for all that she's been able to overcome because I'm sure it's not easy for her either to be, you know, like you said, talked about in the book, but it is, it's essential for your story because... I mean, people are going to learn so many great things and have, you know, like I said, I think I heard about you six years ago and I knew when I started this podcast, you were someone that I really wanted to have on. So yeah, now I was going to, oh, I was going to ask you about, I know the doctor that you went to see with Jacob and your husband was in Boston, right? How has it been finding a family provider now closer to home that is, Accepting of it, but also has the right resources. Do you feel like it is something that a lot of agencies now can provide for families in their communities, or is it still, from a healthcare perspective, um, difficult as far as pre- providers go?
1: So I think it varies largely state by state. So, someplace in Massachusetts, It's definitely there's an increase in the number of providers who are genuinely aware and able to offer affirming care. And we have several really great programs in Massachusetts, including at the Boston Medical Center and at Children's Hospital. Um, And there's one in Rhode Island and there's one in New Hampshire. So we're surrounded by options here. Um, but you go to some states in the Midwest or, or um, in the South, and you might have to actually cross a state border to be able to find somebody who can provide the right care for your child. And so there's such a disparate, you know, kind of perspective, um, education for doctors across the country. And that's something I really hope changes over time. And that's why organizations such as the American Medical Association are really important and that they really are doing a lot of research, doing education and training of doctors, and, you know, providing papers and, and you know, like uh, peer-reviewed papers and things that really are going to help us all get on board to helping these kids and providing the best medical care. But there are some parents who are really at a loss, stuck somewhere in a rural area, let's say in Ohio or in Idaho, who don't have a provider close by. And that's why networks of parents are really important on Facebook um, uh, and other places, uh, social media groups, where parents can share information about providers and things like that.
0: Yeah. Are there any resources that you would recommend to parents that are newly facing um, a transitioning child or family members or friends um, that you would recommend looking up as far as having a community that they could connect with online?
1: I think one of the greatest resources, and they're all across the country, are PFLAG groups. That's Parents for Lesbian and Gay and Transgender Children, PFLAG. Um, They have a national organization. You can find them online, and then you can drill down to find more local groups. If they're not local enough for you to drive, at least they can provide resources for you. Um, That's a great organization. And there are also Facebook groups, uh, which you might need to kind of have sometimes they have kind of gateway questions to make sure that um, you are who you say you are a parent of a gender diverse kid, such as parents of transgender children, POTC. Um, There's um, just make sure that the group that you're going to um, has a sizable amount of participants. And um, I'm sure I mean, there's a lot of There's a lot of hate online as well, and I wouldn't want to stumble accidentally into a group whose purpose is to actually kind of um, demean trans kids and their parents. Right.
0: Right. Yes, I think you're spot on about only joining a group that is already large and says what they say they are. What was the hardest part of change for Jacob, do you think, then and now or during? If you could talk a little bit about that. Has he been open with you i mean it sounds like he's very good at expressing his needs as far as you know how he wants to be treated and that's really great because i know a lot of kids might not even know how to ask for that
1: mm-hmm. so i think in the beginning right after his transition the biggest fear the hardest part for him was was you know re asking people or having me ask people to use a different name and pronouns um, he was really sensitive and shy about it. It, it, was a, it was a big deal for him. And even though he was so much more joyful and came to life after the transition, is, is the only way really to put it, he still, every new, every relationship, you know, where he, someone had known him by a different name and pronoun was a new, scary coming out process. And he still talks about coming out as being the hardest. Part of who he is because with his new friends, people who've never known him as anything but Jacob, he still wants to tell them that he's transgender. Not every kid feels this way, but it is an important part of his identity to him. Um, and he is actually a really proud advocate. So that's something that eventually he feels he wants to share with his friends. And so he actually came out to a friend just last week and it went great. A sweet little girl that was a, is a friend of his, um, in a school he's in now. Um, and it went fabulous and he just was so happy about it. Um, and I think that just clears the way for him in the relationship. He feels like he's not hiding anything. Yeah.
0: I can see that. It would be sort of the same. You know, I'm making a comparison as far as my cancer is concerned. A lot of times when I meet other people in a wheelchair, I want them to know that I haven't been in a chair my whole life. Yeah. I, I think they look at me a lot differently and maybe understand my story better. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, is amazing to be so young and so wise beyond his years. And Thank you. I'm so happy that friends have been accepting and, Mimi, again, I think a big part of why Jacob is so strong is the upbringing that you've given him. So, all the trials that you went through with your faith and your family, and um, it's really inspiring.
1: Um, I feel everything had a purpose. I do feel like every step in my life was meant to be.
0: Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about Patreon. Patreon gives creators of all kinds the tools needed to acquire, manage, and energize their paying patrons. Support Push Diaries by subscribing to our Patreon page where you'll get exclusive content not found anywhere else. We just started a special series where me and my fiance Tyler talk about life and how we push forward together. Just go to patreon.com, create a profile, and become a patron of push diaries podcast and thousands of others thanks and we'll talk again soon okay so what grade is jacob in now
1: He's in fourth grade.
0: Okay. When he went through the transitioning, that happened around four. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So for for a young kid before they reach the age of puberty, so before like 9, 10, 11 years old, the the transition that they have is purely social, which may mean like a change in pronouns, uh, a new haircut or clothing that matches um, how they feel they want to wear, what their gender identity is. And sometimes it's a name. Sometimes it's not even a name. Uh, It's different for everybody, but there's no medical intervention at all until puberty. And then the first step of medical intervention happens to block puberty before it, it proceeds. And that gives families and doctors and the child another two, three, four years before they have to make the next stage of decision of hormones.
0: Another great reason to talk about this issue is as soon as you make these, the ability to accept, um, you're able to have a plan and to let that child be their true self and plan for their future. Um, You know, just like with cancer or whatever medical decision, research shows the sooner (laughs) that you accept that, the sooner they are to make a better plan that is actually formulative for their be- benefit, right?
1: Yeah, um, that's why these bills are, are so dangerous in in the states that I talked about because they're trying to block parents from accessing this care until the age of 18, and at 18, it's already too late because the child has or the young person has gone through the puberty of their natal sex, and they have to, in order to reverse that, Um, it is much harder. So there are, you know, you'll have people who, once they leave their parents home, if they haven't had medical care beforehand, they might have top surgery, for example, um, to remove their breasts, because as a young man, having breasts is extremely distressing. So I'm, by starting early with the blockers and giving my child time, and, and, you know, if he, when he gets to high school, if he wants to, begin with the hormones um i'm enabling him to live the life that he finds most fulfilling and not have and avoid having to remedy all those physical changes that he didn't want later right
0: or or undergo a really invasive medical surgery like removing breasts or i mean that seems like it could be far more traumatic than having hormones that you feel help you be your true self when he did transition socially as a child, he was in preschool, right? Mm-hmm. Or kindergarten. How has the teachers been for you, uh, Mimi and Jacob? Have you felt embraced? Have you had difficulty? Have you had to change schools? Have Have your girls had to change schools because of um, people's discrimination?
1: We haven't. We've been very lucky. Um, living in Massachusetts has been a big factor in that as well. There's just more education. There's more acceptance here. Um, not everywhere, um, but definitely we have had a very positive experience. But back in 2014, when Jacob transitioned, we had to take a lot of the role of educator on um, because all teachers didn't know a lot about What it meant to be transgender. We had to define the word. We had to explain, you know, we had to we had to provide all the materials to explain uh, this is what's necessary for the child. And, you know, a lot of parents still across the country have to take on the role of educating schools even though there are a lot of resources out there now, because this is just something that slowly uh, educators are beginning to realize that this is absolutely essential, that they train their teachers and that they're aware of what to do with the gender nonconforming child. You know, despite the fact that we had to do a lot of that, we were blessed with very good teachers, wonderful administrators, people who immediately got on board. And we've never had an issue with teachers, with teachers or people in the schools, uh, who work for the schools. But we have, we have had experiences of bullying. Jacob just this year was bullied by a bunch of kids for being trans at his school. But when I found out about it, obviously I went to the administrator and to the teachers and they immediately set about deciding what they were going to do to increase education in the schools. Uh, for the students. And we've assembled a task force, and we're going to be looking at curricular materials. And we've just had a district-wide teacher training. And this wasn't just because of what happened to my son. I think it was long overdue. But uh, this is just the right move forward. Because yeah. if you can't get materials into the classrooms that, rep- that show our children's diversity in their gender, then kids will continue to hear conflicting messages from the outside world, from home, and we will bring those views, and some of them will be very harmful for gender-diverse kids.
0: Right, absolutely. And, you know, I think, too, mental health, as any child ages, is a huge issue that we have to look at, right? I mean, what changes in someone's mind when they're not accepted?
1: There's a lot of research on LGBTQ youth now, as of the past couple of years, um, organizations have really stepped up to do research, and depression and anxiety are, are major factors in non-acceptance of LGBTQ youth, whether it's in school or at home. Um, so, depression, anxiety, and that in turn leads to can lead to substance abuse. Um, they have very high rates of substance abuse, homelessness as teenagers, uh, especially when the family is not accepting. Absenteeism from school, dropping out of school early, you know, uh, being molested by people because they're out on the street, for example, is really high for LGBTQ youth. And um, suicidality, you know, suicidal ideation at a horrific rate that's about three or four times the the national average. So we definitely need to realize that these kids are in crisis if they're not affirmed if they're not accepted it's it's the family who needs to you know we need families to come around we need schools to come around and we need communities and we need especially like we had this discussion um just now we need faith communities to come around and embrace these kids um it really is a life or death issue
0: yeah 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 um, well, thank you so much for being so vulnerable, open and honest and genuine. And um, I appreciate you too giving the resources for people to find. I'm kind of getting to the end here. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, as your profession changed after you had kids, not only being a mom, but maybe what you went to school for and what you're doing now. I know you've written a book and you call yourself an author. How has your life changed? goal change as far as what you want to accomplish now that you are a mom to Jacob and you know what has he taught you that has changed how you live your life as far as finding
1: fulfillment through what you do as work that's a uh, that's the million dollar question I um Jacob utterly transformed my life in the most wonderful way I went to school uh, to study international relations. Uh, I was interested in national security. I ended up poking about after after I finished grad school, um, not really finding something that I was satisfied with or that really engaged me. I did become a teacher for a short while. Then I had kids and decided to stay at home. I'd been a stay-at-home mom for several years before Jacob transitioned. And once he transitioned, I realized like a lot of parents of trans kids that, I needed to advocate for him, whether it was in a small way in our community or in a big way publicly. You mentioned our NBC um, segment from 2015, uh, Jacob's Journey, it was called, and the book, What We Will Become. It's been amazing. I wouldn't want to do anything else. It's so rewarding to be able to educate, to reach out, reach to parents like myself who might be at the very beginning of their journey and so scared and alone and to know that I'm giving them a pathway that they can they can bring their child to you know to life the way mine did because so many of us have similar stories about kids who were withdrawn or shutting down socially at every age group and having transition and getting that support is life-giving and it's just new life in that child. And to be able to do this for kids and to be able to make families whole and to be able to support families like who are supporting their kids just means everything to me. It is the most fulfilling thing I could ever ask for. Nothing I ever dreamed of. I always loved writing on a personal level or like a lot of writing in school for academically, but I never saw myself writing a book about something so intimate as motherhood and, um, just so blessed to have had this opportunity.
0: Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm blessed by you too. And I don't even have a transgender child or no one, but I appreciate just the love that you've been able to talk about and fight for. And it's everybody's mission in life to be who we feel we are and, you know, not be pushed around by fear And I just really appreciate that. And I think you spoke it beautifully, being able to make a plug for other children and families. And even if it's just a friend or a community or a church, being able to educate yourself and then truly embrace the people that need it most, I think is really, really powerful. So thank Thank you for being on. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you, Mimi, was... Now that you kind of are out there and being able to meet other people going through similar things, can you share a story of something that just really made you go, wow, Um, whether that was something that you guys were able to overcome politically and beat, or a story of someone who was at, you know, wit's end, so close to ending their life or not being accepted to totally... Uh, changing and being able to be accepted. Do you have any stories that you can share?
1: I, I hear from people all the time, and and it's just um, that's one of the things that I love the most about what I do. I have heard from people who said that they were feeling despaired and that they had had really um, tense and damaging relationships with their parents, and and that they oh, the thing that makes me the saddest always is hearing I wish you had been my mom, um, because that just oh. Hard, because every mom should support their, their children. Um, I just remember I was heading to my first day at the state house in Massachusetts to lobby for a public accommodations bill that would protect transgender people against discrimination in public spaces. And we ended up winning that fight after, uh, 10 years that had been fought. I joined in the last year and a half of the fight and I was in the elevator with this really uh, dapper looking young man who just, you know, he noticed what floor I had pressed the button for. And so we were both heading to the same uh, meeting and, and it was mothers, it was around mother's day. And so they were getting moms of trans kids to lobby, you know, he said, Oh, are you here for the bill? And I said, yes. And he goes, why? And I said, because I have a transgender kid. And he said, how old is your son? And this was 2015, and I think the concept of there being very young transgender children was still making its way out into the public. And I said, my my son is five, and he just, his face, his eyes filled with tears, and he just said, oh, I just, I wish you had been my mom. And there was so much pain in his, his, his eyes, and I just, like, I said, I wish I had been too. But we, you know, we fought together side by side. We got this thing done. Um, it's the greatest pleasure of my life to be doing this and the honor to be doing this with folks who have fought so hard. More and more I'm hearing from parents, I didn't know what was going on with my child, but now I do. And now I know I can help them. And that's that's why I do what I do.
0: Well, Mimi, thank you again so much for being on. It has been a pleasure, and I know I'm so happy people can find you. Speaking of which, how can people find you on social media? Can you just kind of say your first and last name again and what social media accounts that you have?
1: Sure. So I'm Mimi LeMay, M I M I L E M A Y. I'm not particularly great at social media, but I'm getting better. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think my Twitter account is at Mimi S LeMay. Mimi S, S is my for my middle name. And I'm on Facebook, Mimi LeMay. I have MimiLeMay.com, a website that I'm building up. And I'm also on Instagram, at the Mimi LeMay. And I am the author, proud author, of What We Will Become. And where can people buy your
0: book? Um, I
1: imagine Amazon. Amazon um, oh. and Barnes & Noble. That's yeah. where I'm going to go to get my <laughs> copy. That's- Make sure to leave a review. I love getting reviews. so.
0: Yes, absolutely. I will do that. Well, congratulations for getting your book out. Are you working on any other projects right now that you want people to know
1: about? Hmm. I'm definitely considering another book, uh, this time of our years in advocacy, kind of in the trenches type story. I am writing for magazines now, coming up with some essays, and I am interested, I'm kind of dabbling in my head with, do I have time for a blog? So that might be coming around the bend, but definitely check out mimimi.com.
0: Yes, definitely. And if you ever get sick of writing this stuff, you could join me in being a podcast lady. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much Mimi for being on today. Take care. So this is real life, but Tyler's playing computer games in the background, so you guys will just have to deal with the background noise. Um, I just wanted to quick tell you to be sure to check out pushdiariespodcast.com. I have uploaded a bunch of great resources that Mimi LeMay spoke about in this episode, along with videos, books, and other resources surrounding the transgender community. And as usual, thanks a lot for listening. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast, too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash push diaries podcast. Thank you for listening.